Okay, I've got a new feature for the podcast. What is it? It's botanical plant joke of the week. Oh, don't include this in the podcast. I have to listen to it all day at work. <laughs> oh, go on then, what is it? Okay, a wood spurge walks into a bar and says to the landlord, I'll have a table for four and a round of lagers. Yeah. So the landlord says, okay, I'll bring you four beers. Oh, God. Welcome to the Wildlife Garden Podcast. Hello everyone, I'm Ellie and I'm Ben and that is very much Ben with some excellent botanical joke activity. I'm proud of that, only only the botanist will find that funny. (laughs) I did smirk to be fair, I mean it was only a smirk but... (laughs) I'm not going to explain the joke either, you've got to go away and look it up, it's your homework for this week. But please don't interact too much about it otherwise we'll only encourage him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah so hello everybody, what have we got coming up on the episode today Ellie? Well, today we're talking about all about wildflower meadows, which is a huge topic in the wildlife garden. Marvellous meadows. Agree. Yeah, and what to do to get them. We've just talked about Nomo May and about why grass is so wonderful in its own right. But then if you want to go that stage further and try meadow making in your own garden at home, then we're going to give you some advice on what to do following a really good book, which is called Making a Wildflower Meadow by Pam Lewis. Yeah, and then following that, I've got the native plant of the week, which is the humble bramble. And it's got some really surprising facts, actually. I'm quite excited about that. I'm always excited about everything, to be fair. Yeah. You know. <laughs> we're also going to do our news and sightings. But just before that, we're going to mention some things that are coming up on the podcast. So in the next episode, we're talking about gardening for moths, aren't we? Oh, my God. Yes, we are. We're going to delve into the details about what you can do to attract them and help them out in your gardens. Yeah, there's been loads of mothy action recently, hasn't there? So mm-hmm. we've actually just read about yeah what you can do to try and spot them in your garden as well. So we're going to go on a little night safari and, and give you a description of how you can entice them in for the evening. And then a date for all of your diaries... Coming up next week, this is going to be Thursday the 12th of August, we have our first live Q&A and we're hosting this on YouTube. Ooh, so you get to see us as well as hear us. Yeah, exactly. Oh God, poor you. Hopefully you won't switch anybody off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we might, even if we only get five people, I'll be pleased with that. We've been taking questions for the last couple of months. So if you've dropped us a line and asked a question, then we're going to be answering it as part of that Q&A. But then we'll also be taking questions from people live, so you can just type them in. If you've got any sort of Google account, a Gmail account, or a Google calendar, or whatever, then you can log in and actually ask us a question on there. Um, But then we'll actually record that and release it as a later episode. So like I say, if you have asked a question, but you can't listen to it live, then just listen out for a future episode and we'll be answering it then. Cool. So to access that, it will be at 7.30, like I said, on the 12th. And we will be putting the link up on Twitter and on Facebook about an hour before it goes live. So all you need to do is follow the link and it will take you right through to the Q&A. Perfect. Look forward to seeing you there. So should we crack on with some sightings? Yes. It's a pretty long list, so I'm just going to rattle through them. But I'm going to squeeze this one in Ben. Ben said I couldn't do it, but I've been singing a little song in my head recently. 
And it goes, the tits are back in town, the tits are back in town. And that's because our blue tits are back. Well, all the birds, basically. Last episode, we, we mentioned that they'd all gone there on their summer holidays. And they often do this when they're both rearing young, but also molting. So now's about the time they all shed those old feathers and start you know, growing new ones. So they just disappear and keep a low profile while they're doing that. And yeah, we're really pleased to see them all come back basically. So I've been cleaning the feeders and topping them up again with seed and it is going down again. So happy days. Yeah, fantastic. I just love to see the spadgers. It just doesn't yeah. sound the same in the garden. Spadgers, by the way, we mean sparrows, house yeah. sparrows. <laughs> I've also heard them called spudgies yeah. by a customer as well, a friend. But yes, also on the topic of sparrows, I saw them eating, this is really interesting, the seeds of a cortaderia, which is a type of pampas grass. And this is something that I wanted to do for a while. I just want to make a proper record of all the things that aren't necessarily listed in the books as to what birds will eat in your garden, in, you know, in terms of plants. So that's another thing. If people want to get in touch and let us know if you've seen something quite interesting like a bird eating a seed of... I actually saw, green, uh, I think it was greenfinches on geraniums once, which mm, was really right, interesting. Yeah. Then do let us know and we can start compiling our lists. We've also, on the bird theme, had a, a fledgling blackbird. Yes. Yeah, which I did beautiful. post about. Really, really beautiful. And it was quite interesting because we, we actually, we think we saw the process of fledging because we saw the male blackbird circling the ivy, which is where I think they're nesting. And it was just going mad, like shouting and circling this ivy. Yeah, which is something we've seen other birds do. We were on holiday a couple of months ago. I think we talked about what we saw when we were down in the southeast. And we were in one woodland. It was dusk. And we saw a woodpecker. Well, we heard it first, didn't yeah. we? Well, I Screaming. think it was a greater spotted yeah. woodpecker. And it was just going nuts. And we thought it sounded like a warning call. But then what we realised was it was their way of and it's not a very nice sounding to our ears, but it's basically them just encouraging their chicks out yeah. of the nest. So we hid in a bush, basically, <laughs> and watched as there was a, a woodpecker hole in a, I think it was in an oak. And you could just about see that there were two chicks in there. And yeah, the parents were just flitting around on, on other branches calling to them and it went on for hours yeah we did it? stay um, in that bush for a long time we did yeah one <laughs> fledged when we were there but the other one they couldn't entice it out quite yet but then yeah the the blackbirds have been doing exactly doing the, the same, same thing haven't they and also a wren when i was uh just in another garden i, th I thought the wren was shouting at me but then i quickly realized it was probably shouting at its fledglings which was really nice to see so moving away from the birds, on the insect front, we've also seen some pretty cool things. And last week, I was just near someone's bin in front of some ivy, and I noticed this interesting... We just hang out in bins. Bins in and edges. bushes. <laughs> it's a very glamorous job we have. I noticed a wasp-like creature, and I knew it wasn't just your regular garden wasp, common wasp. I've since learned that it is one of the Ectemnius wasps. I don't know which species, but this eats hoverflies. It's really, really interesting. I've never seen one before. It had sort of stump-like antennae, didn't it? And, and quite an elongated wasp, obviously yellow and black body. Yeah, just really big interesting. Big eyes, big broad head. Mm. We looked through our new book, but then we asked some people on, on Twitter as well, because we reckoned it was one, the species was Cavifrons. And uh, somebody called Liam Crowley on Twitter, they confirmed that it was because apparently, not that we noticed this, 
it was a large female, and you could tell because of the golden clypeal pubescence. Way, I did not notice that. No. Well, Liam said it looked like it has one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, I'll have to go and study those photos a bit harder. Yeah. But also, I did look up their life cycles, and well, maybe this is just the Cavafron species, but. That one in particular burrows in decaying wood. And we will do maybe a a whole episode on the importance of rotting wood in your garden because it is a fantastic habitat for so many different inverts. But yeah, it was really interesting to know that that is what this one likes. Get you using inverts instead of invertebrates. I know, I'm just so cool, aren't I? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, what about some of the prettier insects? That was pretty. Oh no, yeah, sorry. This is very pretty. That was really mean. Sorry, Octavius Wasp. No, we've seen quite a few butterflies as well recently and we we actually had a holly blue in our garden on the ivy, which is what their second generation caterpillars, the larvae, will eat. So that was really interesting. And then I was going to mention just one, this is not strictly a garden species, but I'm allowing myself this one because it was so fantastic. But we went with Jack Perks from the Bearded Tits podcast to a wood near Nottingham and we saw the purple emperor butterfly. When Ah. she says we, she means Jack and Ellie saw it because I forgot my binoculars. Yep, kids, always take your bins. (laughs) And also, apparently, it turns out from trying on a friend's glasses the other day that I really desperately need glasses too. Well, this explains a hell of a lot, (laughs) to be honest But yeah, no, it was really fantastic. Again, I think what we'll do is maybe put up a link to each of the species that we mentioned, particularly things like the Ectemnius wasp that people might not have seen before, just so you can get get a glimpse of what they actually look like. So look out for those links in the show notes. And one more podcast shout out, as I've mentioned a couple already today. We submitted our one good thing that we've done for the planet recently to the For What It's Earth podcast hosts, Emma and Lloyd, our new pod pals. And basically, we've been, we've started showering in a bucket and collecting the water. That means we stand in a bucket <laughs> and we shower normally and it collects the water. Yes. And we don't try and fit ourselves some sort of contortionist <laughs> way into a bucket. Really old school. We're past like the tin, tin bath, bath days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, but we've been using it to water our plants and it is just, it's revolutionised the watering system in our garden, I'd say. I'm much happier doing it because I know I'm not wasting loads of fresh water, but yeah, it's made all the difference. Yeah, it is incredible how much water a shower uses. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but we do collect the non-soapy bits of the water. So there's a top tip for all of you. Brilliant. So now let's go on to the news quickly. Shall I do mine first? Do it. This one's an easy one. Because we talked about the wonderful grass, grasses that you're going to find in your garden last time, and we're talking about meadows today, I just thought I would mention a sort of a campaigning organisation, which is a collaboration between three different organisations, Plant Life, Butterfly Conservation and the Bumblebee Conservation Trust. And they call their combined campaign Grasslands Plus... And what they're trying to do is to encourage the government to take grassland conservation seriously, especially as we come up to the COP climate conference that's going to be, it's in Glasgow, isn't it, this year? Mm -hmm. I didn't actually know this, but they say that 30% of the Earth's carbon is stored in grassland. Wow. So if you already think how much we've talked about sort of PT bog, how much that captures, and then you've got 30% of the Earth's carbon in grassland as well. It's just an absolutely huge carbon store and it goes way beyond 
well, it's not beyond what the forests do, but forests are vitally important, but so are other habitats as well for carbon sequestration. So they've been running this combined campaign for quite a few years now, you know, and as they say, the UK's lost 97% of its meadows and other species-rich grassland, and they sort of link this to the fact that we've seen a 60% decrease in biodiversity overall. Yet they are trying to push the government to do this, but they also have a letter on their um, website, which is grasslandsplus.org.uk. We'll put everything into the show notes. And it's just one of these standard letters that you can send to your MP, basically. And you can also send it to the PM. Keyboard warrior. Yes. yes. No, that's a really good shout out. Thanks. I think that I, I'm definitely going to do that. Lovely. And speaking of butterfly conservation, which is one of the partners. Oh, yes. My news is really quick. It's just a reminder that you have until the 8th of August to get involved with the big butterfly count. And that is run by Butterfly Conservation UK. The link will be in the show notes. And basically, we did it. We actually did this yesterday or the day before. We went out 15 minutes of your time, stand in a sunny spot. That's really important because that's when they actually fly and just record what you see. And they have all the different ident, you know, keys and things online if you struggle with your with your butterflies. And it is a really good thing to do. Yeah, Very they've got useful. quite a good website as well, haven't they? Where you they actually have. put in the, the results. Yes, and it's one of these that you can actually do it multiple times and submit multiple 15-minute slots. But oh, as long I didn't as it, know that. Yes, as long as you do 15 minutes strictly and then send off the results for that particular uh, survey then that's great and yeah so happy butterfly looking I think it's now time to enter the realms of the book club which Ben you are taking the the helm on because I've not actually read this one. No we're really busy at the moment being gardeners in the summer but I did find time to fit this book in which was great because I have actually read it before but it reminded me why I loved it so much the first time and why I wanted to actually have it as one of our book club. So the book we're talking about today is called Making a Wildflower Meadow and it's by somebody called Pam Lewis. This book is a love letter to making meadows and before I describe anything about it I'm going to read you something from the preface. This was written by Dame Miriam Rothschild and she says in the production of larger and more colourful garden plants we have often sacrificed scent and nectar for colour and size. Let us retain these miraculous man-made garden creations but also bring back the ethereal beauty of wildlife with fragrance and sweetness and the attendant song of birds, the tinkle of the titmouse and the heart-aching melody of the nightingale. That is beautiful. It is lovely, isn't it? Mm. With that sort of language and the fantastic photography that is in this book, when you read it, you'll realise how much Pam (laughs) really loves her meadows. (laughs) And she does a wonderful job of explaining why you should love them too. But also how to go about creating them in your garden at home. So part of the function of the book is to give you a description of the technical aspects of how to go about it, but also to explain the wonders of some of the plants. And she gives you long lists of plants that you can include in your meadow as well, but also to explain why they're so good for wildlife and how the maintenance makes a big difference to that. To begin with, she says there's lots of technical information out there, which is true. So if you go on organisations like Plant Life's website, there used to be a specific charity for grasslands as well, actually, which sadly fell by the wayside a couple of years ago. Um, But yeah, there's loads of technical information that you can find. But 
as a general gardener you might not want to be reading sort of botanical reports and things like that so i really recommend getting this book because halfway through the book she does give you a four-page calendar of exactly what you need to do throughout the year but the rest of it is a description of her trials and tribulations and showing the mistakes that she actually made because it's from those mistakes that she learned what works and what doesn't And that is critical in all gardening, I think. A bit of honesty goes a long way. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Going back to the beginning then, she started this garden in 1986 and she called her garden Sticky Wicket. It's down in Dorset and I think it started out as four acres and she added an extra acre of paddock on top as well. So it's a mixture of properly gardened areas, big herbaceous borders, mown lawns, but then also wildflower areas. sounds dreamy it does sound fantastic what she has done at sticky wicket is my idea of paradise on earth one day ben we'll we'll get there five (laughs) acres exactly it's exactly what i want (laughs) to do but the advice that she gives is equally applicable to a small garden and you don't need a jcb to do it so we really encourage you to go out and buy this book it's really easy to read. In fact, this book was actually released originally in 2003. I didn't realise how long her garden had been going because I bought, picked up the second edition from 2015. Mm. And yeah, I don't know what the original edition is like, but, uh, but as I say, the photography in this second edition is just absolutely stunning. It's, it's a really well-produced book. Well, I presume she's just got more maybe on the maintenance side of things in the, in the updated one if she's been looking after those meadows for 10 years or more. Yeah, probably. So what I thought we'd do is take from the book the key things that she says you need to consider when making wildflower meadow and then we're going to tell you how they apply to a normal garden at home. From our own experiences a lot of them as well. Yeah absolutely so we've not been involved in that many meadow making projects but we've we've seen a couple and we have done a few small patches in people's back gardens. The first thing you need to do, and she makes a a real big point about this, is to assess your garden situation because you need to know where you're starting from. And this applies to all gardening. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, Yeah. If you're doing any garden design, you need to know, well, what you're dealing with. Preparation and and knowing what the situation is, is key to success. Yeah. And then you, yeah, you don't waste as much money. (laughs) Yeah. So she gives the five key things that you need to consider. So number one is to identify the plants you already have. If you've been doing no mow may, then you'll know what's come up in your lawn. And there might be things that you don't want to rip out in the act of making the meadow because you might have a fantastic plant community already. And lots of people, when they do no mow may, often find things like orchids and rare, rare stuff coming up. And if you're uncertain about what it is you've got in your garden as well, there are we, we live in such a great era of you know social media. There are thousands of experts online that are just willing to answer your questions with just a simple photograph. But also we can recommend the Seek app for wildflowers. It, it seems to be pretty accurate, actually. Yeah, it's, it's S-E-E-K. I, yes, and it's by iNaturalist, I think. Yeah, it's, it really does work, actually, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Number two, she asks you to consider what type of soil you have. Is it clay or is it sandy? Is it free draining? Um, does it hold a lot of nutrition? pH. Yep. Number three is what's the aspect? You know, do you have a nice sunny lawn or are you north facing? Is it shaded most of the day? Because that's going to affect what sort of plants you can grow. Number four is how has the land been treated in the past? Now, this is really key because in lots of gardens, we are interested in increasing the soil fertility and the amount of nutrition that there is now that is really the opposite of what you want to be doing for a wildflower lawn because grasses are better at taking up nutrition than the wildflowers are so if you've got a very nutritious soil the grasses tend to do particularly well and they will outcompete the flowers 
Yes. So while we do love the long grass and it has its benefits, if you're what you're actually after is a wildflower meadow full of flowers and not full of grasses, then this is really important. Oh, that's a really good point, because there are benefits of just tussocky, tufty long grass in their own right. So, yeah, this is just for people who specifically want to have a a wildflower meadow like, you know, you've seen in a, a nature reserve. And the final thing is what wildflowers grow nearby. You know, if you're on, say, a clay soil, and you know that there's a nature reserve, I don't know, a mile away that's on the same soil as you, then the flowers that are growing in that meadow are going to be the ones that you're going to want to buy seed from and include in your garden. So if you didn't already have a good excuse, you've got our permission to go out and just visit your local nature reserves and investigate. So whether you've got five acres or you've got a five metre lawn, all those things you need to consider. If we talk about one of the things we've actually done ourselves... Hello to Sarah and Sean out there, who are some customers of ours, and they're just moving actually this week. Away from their beautiful wildflower. Yeah, sadly, we're not going to be able to see this meadow in action, you know, for the next couple of years. But they asked us to create a wildflower area in their lawn. It really is a pocket. Like, we can't stress enough. We're not only talking to the people out there with five acres. This is, it probably is a five metre square lawn, isn't it? And we've just created a corner into this wildflower meadow and it, i think its longest edge is about three meters long yeah tops and then one and a half meter on the diagonal yeah, yeah like a little right angle triangle yeah that's right um, so they wanted to use the rest of the lawn for kids stuff basically so it's got a swing and a wendy yeah, house and various other stuff, stuff. yeah we had the aim of creating this this small area of wildflowers but we knew one thing was for sure was that that lawn had been fed in previous years so the nutrition was going to be quite high Now, one of the things Pam makes a big deal about, rightly, is that you need to reduce overly fertile soil. She gives three key ways of dealing with overly fertile soil. The first way is to exhaust the soil of nutrition. So you can do that by growing something else in that space for a while. You know, that takes up lots of nutrition, then you just take that away. Like what? Um, well, I'm potatoes. <laughs> oh, okay. But growing uh, yeah, a small area of potatoes for five years in advance of this meadow wouldn't qu- quite doesn't sound very Doesn't sound very quick. <laughs> no. But someone might want to do it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, number two is you can bury that soil. So you could literally mound something else on top of it. And that would work in some situations, but it wouldn't have worked in, in a normal garden situation like we're dealing with now. They didn't want a hill, now. did they? No. A small hill. And number three is you can remove that fertility. So Pam goes into great details about performing a scrape, which is when you basically take the top couple of inches of soil off. And in her garden, she had to do this in one meadow. She called it the new meadow, which was dominated by loads and loads of coarse weeds, by very, very rich tussocky grasses. And she tried, as she explains in the book, year after year just to deal with that by hand. And eventually she gave up and performed this scrape where she dug all the top six inches of topsoil off, which was really fertile, to a layer of gravel underneath. And Mm. she used that topsoil. She didn't get rid of it. She made a mound with it, which is good for, for other species. But then she could sow on top of that. Now, those are all really fantastic options, but none of which really applied to the garden that we were dealing with. So we needed to take some of that fertility away in a different way. So we went about it using two things. So first of all, we really bullied the soil. (laughs) And this is something Pam talks about a lot. If you're going to establish wildflower seeds in an area that's already full of grass, you need to make gaps in the grass. 
essentially. Mm. And there's loads of different ways you can do this. Again, if you performed a scrape, then you could lay new turves down without these coarse grasses, but leaving big gaps in between and sow the wildflowers in, in between. If you're sowing from scratch and you've got an empty bed, then you can just make sure you're sowing more wildflowers than grass seed. You know, if you know grass seed is going to come in anyway. But what we did was, because this was a normal lawn full of ryegrass and things like that we basically went to town with a rake <laughs> and we ruined the grass completely we, it's quite fun actually <laughs> good to get rid of some hanger yeah. Did a lot a lot of scarifying but not just scarifying this was just this is more obliteration I yeah think. that's right <laughs> your grass needs to be way beyond looking sorry for itself it needs to look completely <laughs> dead yeah. <laughs> yeah and keep mowing it and remove the grass clippings because everything that you leave rots back down into the soil and effectively feeds the grass that's still there that's right so what we did was we kept mowing this area short and then we really really abused the grass in the autumn but then we sowed some yellow rattle seeds onto it now yellow rattle many of you have heard about is what's called a hemiparasite and it's basically partly parasitic on grasses it's not fully parasitic because it also photosynthesizes in its own right but its roots latch onto the roots of grasses and it absorbs some of their nutrients from them so it helps cre- keep the vigour down. For the first year we used this combination we kept mowing it to reduce or to take all that grass away so it didn't rot down we really really removed the amount of grasses that were in there by just scraping them away and then we put in some of this this yellow rattle. And you do need to sow yellow rattle in autumn because it needs a frost period like the winter period to actually germinate so that's really important. Yeah absolutely right. The following year, what we did to, again, reduce the fertilities, we didn't actually let the flowers flower, did we, particularly? No, no. We kept mowing it. Yeah, which yeah. seems counterintuitive because you think, oh, I've done, I've done a bit of work, I'm going to let the flowers... You will get some flowers yeah. coming, you know, the same way you do with no mow may. But it's really important just to keep abusing that, that area. That's to right. To keep the grasses in check. Yeah. Now, Pam talks about the best time to reduce fertility by mowing is to mow it in June because that's when it's got the maximum amount of lush growth. So it's got the maximum amount of nitrogen in the green parts of the plant. Mm. So, but we just mowed it a couple of times that first year, didn't we? we so did, we kept yeah. removing what was there. And then we scarified it and abused it again the following autumn and we sowed some wildflower seeds into it. Well, actually, we put in some plugs, didn't we? Well, yeah, I thought Sorry, I was going to say, not... we, didn't, we actually chose the plug route. Yeah, well, you yeah. could have done it by seed, it doesn't matter, but we, we put them in in the autumn. So it was things like yarrow, field scabious, um, field scabious greater napweed, regular napweed as well. Yeah. Um, some oregano had made its way into it naturally too. Oh, I can't remember. It wasn't that big a selection. No, no. I think because we, it's only we, we, a small area. I was going to say, we chose fewer species and then just put a few plugs of each in. So we allowed those to um, settle in, basically. And then the following year, and this is the year we're in now, we were just down there last week, the last visit we were going to this garden, and the yarrow's in full flower. Yep. The greater um, knapweed is up which is stunning i've not seen that in the wild it is beautiful plant definitely look that one up it's greater knapweed yeah really which is centaurus scabiosa mm. it's a latin if you want to look it up and the area that we'd sown with the yellow rattle was absolutely full of yellow rattle seed heads <laughs> yeah it's gone it's gone to town yeah exactly <laughs> so by doing the constant scraping away of the the grasses 
really attacking the grasses and by including the yellow rattle we did a really good job of reducing the vigour of those grasses and allow the other things to take. And while that is faster than growing potatoes on a patch for a few years in a row to reduce the fertility it did still take a full year as we said of us being strict and actually mowing down any any of the flowers even that formed in the first year um as we said that just keeps reducing the fertility so while it's not a you know years long process you can expect it to take about a year to really fully establish something like this one thing that pam in the book is really really clear about is that it does take gardening to make a meadow work mm. and actually this this might be a good time to talk about something she says in the book is that meadows are not natural there is absolutely nothing natural about a meadow meadows come because of a very specific grazing regime mm. you tend not to graze sheep on your land in a normal suburban garden what you're trying to do is emulate some of that action of either the reduction of the growth by literally being eaten down to the ground by sheep but also the scuffing up you know as their hooves do they have hooves sheep i don't know if you call it a hoof the here's a hoof sheep feet scuff up the ground and in those well actually whether it's sheep or or aurochs which are the the precursors of the modern day cattle as they grazed and moved around especially in the autumn and winter when the the seed will have been fresh they'd have scraped up the ground and made holes basically for that that grass to yeah, germinate so hay Sorry, med- those flowers to germinate so hay meadows basically is what we're talking about and they are they are simply a byproduct but they just happen to be really beautiful and the main reason why we now want them in our gardens is a because they're really good for wildlife and b because we've decimated the amount of hay meadows that exist in agricultural land. Again, there's nothing natural about meadows. They don't spring up spontaneously. And the way we're managing the countryside at the moment now is not conducive to meadows. So she makes a really, really key point that you, if you're going to make a meadow at home, it does require work. Yes. You have to garden it. We're not trying to scare you, but we have had the experience where people assume that it's something you just sow and then walk away from and that it just happens. But as we've said in this book, Pam makes it really clear that you actually do need to change your management re- regime yep. and include it in your general gardening practices. What Pam talks about is how to deal with nettles and docks and other coarse weeds. In her garden, she just does it by hand because she's organic like we are. Yes. I was going to say, because another thing you often see is just spray off this area with glyphosate before you do. No, you don't have to do that. Yeah. If you have a small enough area, Mm. then you can absolutely do it by hand. So if you're in a garden setting, then you really don't need to get out the weed killer for any reason at all. So what Pam does is every now and again, she just goes out and hand pulls the docks. And in areas that are really, really bad, she will go and continually mow them. I also like plugs because especially for us we often visit gardens once every two weeks so we're not there to monitor things that regularly for our customers if it's different obviously if it's your garden you can be out there checking things and then it just means that you can actually see the plants that you've put in because they're already established they're really tiny obviously but then you can actually monitor whether they failed or not it's it's a useful thing that's right so she's actually got a specific quote about this and this quote she's talking about um creeping buttercup which is quite an invasive plant she says creeping buttercups also began to force their way 
back and the battle with these plants and the soil fertility is ongoing. I regularly dig out some of the most brutish buttercups and put my own (laughs) fine grasses and wildflower mix in their place. I also add some plants and these need to be well grown on if they are to keep their place as a newcomer. So exactly as Ellie said, you know, if you're adding plug plants to the lawn, then they've got a head start. Exactly. Yeah. So they just want to be able to compete with these with these other species. Excellent. Yeah. So, yeah, if you want to go for meadows, by all means, buy this book. It's absolutely fantastic. In the back of the book, it's got a couple of pages of the sort of species that you'd want to include. So it's got plenty of description there. She goes through other areas in her garden, which we don't have time to talk about now. Places she's made specifically lawns for frogs, chalk banks for butterflies and for other low-growing species, um, downland species she's got all sorts of ideas in there and she also has uh, plenty of information about where you can look for further information too buy it (laughs) we're not sponsored by any of these by the way (laughs) no that's right it's a really good book Right, well, before we move on to the plant of the week, we have some thank yous to put out there for all the wonderful donations. Very, very generous people uh, donating to our GoFundMe page to pay for all of our audio equipment. So roll the music, Ben. Thank you very much to Tom Green. Amanda Ivy, To Tim Allman. Katharina Dome. To Rachel Horwitz, Sarah and Sean Elliott Mayer, and to two donors who gave privately as well. Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. It is really helpful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, in the last next couple of weeks, we're going around to visit lots of different experts in their gardens and to record them in the field or in their own gardens, as I say. So, all that equipment costs a bit to buy. If you can help donate to our fundraiser called Get the Wildlife Garden Podcast Some Gear, then it'll be very much appreciated. We are nearly at half the amount that we're hoping to raise wow. for the year. Half a year, half the amount. I think that's uh, that's an achievement. That's Thank right. You. Yeah. So if, <laughs> if nine of you donated before the next episode, then we would be at halfway. And you get your name on the radio. Yeah, you get your <laughs> one second of fame. <laughs> <laughs> And this week's native plant of the week is the blackberry, Rubus fruticosus aggregation. Ag. Ag. That bit's important, but I will come on to that. We've seen the word fruticosus before with the shrubby sink foil, and it literally just means shrubby in Latin. So anything that sounds a bit fruticosus, fruticosa, etc., means it's a shrubby plant. Now, Which is confusing because you'd think it would mean something to do with fruit, wouldn't you? You would, but that's Latin for you. <laughs> No, I didn't learn it at school. I don't know what any of it means. No. It's a it's a deep learning curve. No, I well I'm not going to spend ages describing it because I think most people 
know what a blackberry looks like the plant itself not just the berry and they do they can grow at a rate of knots over the summer and they can actually reach about three meters by three meters if you let them some varieties and what I will just say though is that have you ever looked at the actual flower of a blackberry because when it is in flower it is really beautiful and these flowers appear in May all the way through to September although obviously it gets slightly less floriferous as the season goes on and they are five petaled ranging from light pink to white although we did see one recently that actually had quite deep pink flowers mm, which was yeah. really it was in the wild it was just in a nature reserve really beautiful they're about three centimetres across, but you get these little clusters of them. So again, when the whole shrub's in flower, it really is very beautiful. And then, of course, you, from July, get the very well-known blackberry fruits, which start red. And then as they ripen, they turn to that rich, juicy, glossy black that entices everyone, including all the wildlife, to eat them. Now, as I said, you almost definitely see these wherever you go, and they grow pretty much anywhere woods hedges scrub all over england and wales apparently they're less common in scotland but i've looked at maps and we've seen them in scotland yeah. <laughs> uh, so yes they do obviously grow in scotland and, and ireland and yes yeah, well, and, <laughs> and also gardens as well now apparently just to get the picture across bramble is present in every 10 kilometer square in wales apart from one single upland square of the snowdonia range so it's pretty much everywhere and it's found all over europe all over northwestern africa temperate western central asia and also north and south america it also has some really interesting cultural associations with us as humans and it turns out we've always loved a crumble or maybe maybe this person didn't eat it in a crumble. But anyway, blackberry seeds were found in the stomach of a Neolithic man whose remains were dug up at Walton-on-the-Nays in Essex. Wow. How's about that? Yeah. We've been eating them for a very long time. And also the great thing is that they're actually really good for us being really high in dietary fibre, vitamin C and vitamin K. So yeah, keep eating them when you're out in the countryside. There are so many facts about blackberry, but I've just tried to distill the most interesting ones. And folklore suggests that blackberry shouldn't be eaten after Michaelmas, which is September the 29th, because the devil apparently then pisses or spits on them. That was what people used to tell each other. Isn't that nice? With a lot of these folk things, there tends to be some actual reason for it, but then it gets these sort of odd associations. Is there any reason why? Yes, actually, after after the 29th of September or thereabouts, the fruits do, you tend to find them becoming mushy and sort of insipid. And so it's just general good advice not to go out eating them. And the reason for that insipidness is that lots of mildews and bacteria just gather on them on the, on the shrub, which makes them sour or cloying. But also the flesh fly, which is just a type of fly that tends to breed in not very nice things, <laughs> as the name would suggest. They, they effectively dribble on them to suck up the juice because it just it starts digesting them before they can actually eat them. So you, oh, so yeah. you get fly spit. But anyway, I'm just, I don't mean to be putting you off. This is only the late blackberries. What, so they dribble spit Indeed. onto it so it sort they, of breaks down yeah, their skin yeah. and they can get... Yeah, they, they do away with chewing like us. We, they just dribble on their food. That's amazing. I know, right? Think uh, of that next time you're making a blackberry crumble after the well, 29th of September. to be honest with you, I'm less careful than Ben when I'm out foraging for food. It's <laughs> going to make me think twice before I get the squishy ones. But anyway. No, it's not. <laughs> no, no, you're right. And blackberries have also been used as a dye. And 
pretty much anyone that has left white sheets on a washing line will probably not find it surprising, especially if you're under the flight path of uh, of a bird that's been gorging on them. Yeah, I'll say no more. <laughs> And also the thorniness of blackberries have also been used to various ends. And bushes tended to be planted on graves, potentially to deter grazing sheep. I don't know why you'd want to keep the sheep off the grave, but anyway. And, but also possibly to keep the dead in and the devil out. So a bit more folklore for you. Mm. That's nice. But also, really importantly, it helps in woodland management. And this is really something that we're just starting to learn more about. And enlightened people like Isabella Tree from the Net Rewilded Estate down in Sussex. Yep. She's realised that if you have a th- if you have a thicket of brambles, as long as it's not too dense, it can really protect the the saplings of newly germinated trees. It's part of the natural regeneration mm. of woodland. You get this scrubby layer first, and then the trees find their way in. Exactly. So the jays plant the tree and then the brambles grow over it and then rabbits do not eat it because they can't get into the brambles. So moving on now to the exciting bit, that is the sexual antics of the bramble. And this is a particularly juicy one. Mm, Some great new botanical words, so the botanical klaxon will be going off. Now, first of all, flowers are produced on one or more year-old stems in the wild, I'll add. In year one, the non-flowering first stem to grow is known as the prima cane, and that is the one that just shoots out of nowhere and grows at what seems like a foot a day. In the second year, it then, its name changes actually, and it becomes the floricane. And lateral buds will break from that just single stem. And from those buds, you then get the flowers. That's nice. Mm, isn't it? Yeah. Never heard of a floricane before. Woof. Yeah. No, I, I, I'd heard prima cane, yeah. but not the floricane. No, that's good. And those floricanes will actually keep flowering for about two or three years. So they're, you know, you get about three years worth of flower from them, but then they will die off and then new ones will have replaced them. Now, within each of the flowers are numerous carpels, which is the female reproductive part of any flower, and many stamens, which is the male, which holds all the pollen. Yeah, the carpel describes the entire female organ made up of three parts. Carpel. It's just a collective term, and that includes the ovary, the style, and also the stigma, which are the bits that collect the pollen down into the ovary, which is where your seed gets made. I couldn't get an exact number and I think it is just, it varies according to the different types of, of bramble that exist. But you have a lot of these female uh, reproductive parts and each one of those will go on to produce a, an individual segment of a blackberry. You know how it's made of lots of different segments? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. So that's why you get so many female things. It's really interesting when you actually look in detail, I think. Um The flowers are hermaphrodite, so that means, as we've said lots of episodes before, they contain both the male stamens and also the female stigmas. And they are insect pollinated, so insects will transfer pollen between bushes, but also between flowers as well on an individual bush or shrub. They are also self-fertile though, but most interestingly, they can also go on to produce fertile seeds with no pollination whatsoever. And this process botanical klaxon is called apomixis 
Ooh, <laughs> I hear you say. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for something from Ben there, but he, he gave me nothing. It's because he uh, knows this already. Yeah. Actually, we've written a blog on you our we, website. You, you wrote a blog. I wrote a blog on our website. It's called... It was about. It was at Christmas time, so I called it Apple Mix yeah. is a Christmas Miracle because it's about, basically, virgin birth, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. It's yep. giving birth without pollination. No, in- <laughs> um, indeed. Yeah, so if you want to know more about Apple Mixes, you can always check out that blog. So what Apple Mixes means is that each plant is able to clone itself effectively without any animal assistance or without pollinating itself, like, you know, transfer of pollen. But in addition to this, those arching stems that come out that we all know so well and have probably been snagged on also root really easily when they eventually touch the ground. And a third thing is that the plant can spread by underground rhizomes, which is what makes them, if you are trying to get rid of brambles, quite a difficult thing. They want to live. They really do. Tough things. So essentially, you get these thickets of genetically the same plant so what can actually end up happening then is that where there is any minor genetic variation of which that just happens naturally then it can easily be passed on to many many offspring which then creates a population of genetically identical plants this is where it gets again a bit geeky but essentially the bramble is actually a huge aggregation as i said before it's rubus fruticosus ag of about I think I've seen lots of different numbers. I'm going to say over 320 is the the most frequent number I saw, but I've also seen over 400 and even 2,000 microspecies. And it is very, very complicated. But there are people out there that can identify each species. And we're talking tiny little variations. And actually, there's a whole specialism dedicated to brambles. And these experts are called batologists, which comes from the Greek from bramble. Isn't that interesting? But each one is also different in taste, you know, the berries, in timing of flowering, and also the size of the fruit, which I think is another thing maybe most people will realise that if you're out walking, sometimes you just get a sort of dodgy looking plant with some really not very nice looking fruit, whereas another one might grow really, really well and have loads of really fat, juicy fruit. And you sort of get to know the local area and where's the best place to go brambling. Yeah, the best hedges to visit. And this thing about micro species is something we're going to have to return to in another episode because it's exactly where these boundaries lie is is really fuzzy <laughs> just, just to paint a picture ben's got a really sort of suspicious looking face yeah. while he's describing this yeah yes, because it's the, not clear cut basically yeah i mean if there's <laughs> uh, if there are say two thousand micro species of bramble then the variations between each micro species are going to be minute <laughs> absolutely tiny but yeah just to to reinforce what ellie was saying the thing with the the specific thing about this apomixis is that when you get a, a local variety of one of these particular micro species, if it's just something that can come only from seed that's pollinated, then that seed is not going to be a clone of the parent, exactly. right? Because it's got different pollen in. So the offspring of that will be a different looking plant. But you can get these clonal populations because they spread underground, like Ellie said, and we've talked about with other plants. Now, the difference with an apomictic species is that this clonal population can travel over space, right? Because a bird can eat this berry that has not been pollinated, so it's therefore a clone of the parent, and it can eat it, and it'll poo it out somewhere else. (laughs) So that's why they call these microspecies, because it's actually a clone of that individual, but somewhere else. So what you get is these 
randomly distributed bunches of these because then when one seed lands and it grows into an adult then it clones itself through all the other ways as well yeah underground and by layering and so on so it's really fascinating and yeah there are other um, species that exhibit apomixis in the uk things like white beams where there's like loads and loads of different micro species i wonder what yeah. the, the specialist of the white beam is called that's something we have to look up yes as ben said they are distributed over really wide areas by birds and also mammals but also the seed can be viable in the ground for up to 100 years wow so in terms of toughness i think this is probably the toughest plant that we've covered yet so going back to the sexual reproduction, the flowers are actually protogynous or gynous, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And this is where the female re- reproductive organs come to maturity before the male reproductive organs within each flower. And this is the opposite to a word that we were introduced to a few episodes ago on various plants, which is protandrous, which is the opposite where the male parts become mature first. And As with pretandry, the purpose of that is to slightly reduce self-pollination because there is still a benefit in mixing genes between plants. And the anthers in the flowers also produce a lot of pollen, which is visible. But the sweet nectar within the flower is actually partially concealed. And that just means that the insect that lands on it has to forage around and look for it. However, because it is a simple flower, it does mean that insects with short, medium and longer tongues can actually reach it. So it's concealed, but it's not so far inside the flower that only the long-tailed bumblebees or or butterflies and moths can reach it, which is really good. The flowers also produce an abundance of this nectar. So what creatures are attracted in to pollinate them? Now, we can attest after having seen a thicket of bramble in a nature reserve quite recently that it is loved by so many different insects. This is just coming in for the pollination, including the Lepidoptera. So in the day, which is when we saw it, loads of butterflies like speckled wood, uh, green veined white, large white were all over this bramble, but also loads and loads of different types of hoverflies and also bees and specifically honeybees really also love the flowers. But we didn't see this. Apparently, lots of beetles also aid pollination so it attracts in lots of beetles to that sweet nectar and then of course well, they'll it, be after the pollen won't they the beetles indeed thank you and also a lot of moths at night they they just love brambles and how much nectar it produce and indeed a study on moth pollination of which there aren't that many actually found bramble pollen on the body of a moth like when they were actually out surveying so it just shows how important moths are in terms of pollination The leaves of the bramble are also a really important food source for lots of different creatures. And I always say this when there's a lot, but there are a huge number of insects which feed on them. And actually the larvae of almost 60 moths feed on bramble leaves, including the truly wonderful scarlet tiger moth. That is a stunner, that one. Isn't it? Quite often you'll find evidence of leaves having been mined like a trail across a leaf and this may well have been the larvae of one of our really tiny like micro moths because a lot of them do feed on bramble yeah you see that a lot and you're looking for a little white line generally Mm. because the green has been eaten away actually so a little squiggly white line on the leaf and that's what it is yeah so the egg hatches and then the larvae just wanders around the leaf just eating on the they're so small yeah on the actually in between the layers of cells in in the leaf In general, though, and I'm proud of this bit, there is a cacophony of coleoptera, that's the beetles to you and I, a tsunami of true bugs, a swarm of sawflies and a multitude of mites that rely on the on the bramble. Did you like that? 
Yeah, lovely. <laughs> but also, um, the fruits, I mean, everyone knows that they're good for humans, but they're also really, really good for lots of different animals. Yep. And I will just say that when a fruit does form, it although we call it a blackberry, it's actually an aggregate fruit, and it's made up of many, many little droplets. That's what the individual uh, segments are called. But yes, in terms of what eats them, well, you, you're going to get loads of different birds come and eat, particularly the corvids and also the thrushes. So that's your crows and also anything blackbirdy and song thrush. Also field mice, but also badgers and foxes will also take berries because yeah, sure. they know what's good for them. As well as a, a really good food plant, the structure of the bramble with those long arching stems, particularly if you've got a thicket, are really good for lots of nesting birds as well and if you're really lucky i don't know if any nightingales do nest in anyone's gardens out there possibly not but nightingales do choose bramble as their sort of nesting site because it's so well protected from predators but also you'll get robins you'll get wrens thrushes blackbirds lots of warblers various finches uh white throats and also long-tailed tits which we saw earlier this year yeah that there's was a video on bramble. our facebook page actually indeed I suppose that's also true because they're evergreen of things like ladybirds and lacewings, other stuff will, will shelter underneath them exactly. during the winter. Yep, it's just it's just a really tough plant that can protect against the elements and, and against predators as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, actually, I say they're evergreen. They're evergreen unless it's a particularly, particularly hard yes. winter. Yeah, yeah. They, they do drop their leaves sometimes. Yeah. So. Actually, one final thing to say before we move on to how to grow it thinking about them dropping their leaves just reminded me something we heard on radio 4 once where there was a specialist in um, murder cases oh i was gonna say this yes yeah who there's one specialist in the country he was on the radio he works out how long a a body basically that's been found has been there by the number of arching stems of the blackberry that's gone over the body and from that they can work out backwards um, well, how many it, years it's been there forensic botany is a thing like, if you know how a plant's grown then you can work out all kinds of different things so yes you're right I, we did hear that on radio four yeah, it's incredible it's isn't kind it of haunted me ever since. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway so how do you grow it now first of all i would just make the point that with our native plant of the wheat we are choosing specifically garden worthy plants and in nine times out of ten we mean this in that they will just look really good in some sort of herbaceous border setting or something like that Bramble, I wouldn't suggest going and putting in your herbaceous border and quite a lot of you, I'm sure, will already be trying to get rid of bramble from such situations. However, there are lots of different situations where it does make a really lovely plant and I would say particularly if you want to grow it for the food for yourself. Now, larger gardens may, and I know some of you listening do have wonderfully large gardens, you're very lucky, but you can get away with maybe even just having like a bramble thicket, you know, just in in some corner somewhere which is good for the fruit but also good for that structure for birds and things that's absolutely brilliant and we definitely encourage that if you've got a smaller garden then i wouldn't necessarily want to give over even a a corner to a bramble thicket but you can very easily grow them up fences and also on wires and we've done this in various places so in those two situations it's slightly less good for the nesting birds but you are still getting that fruit And you can leave some of them for the birds. But if you do want some in your garden, then really it's not fussy. It will grow on sand, it will grow on clay, doesn't even need particularly fertile soil. It will grow on acid, neutral or alkaline soil. So yeah, 
the world is your oyster when it comes to brambles. And also in terms of sun, it can actually grow in deep shade. You might not necessarily get as much fruit from it. But what's really interesting is that brambles increase the surface area of their leaves to account for the darker conditions just so they can get more sunlight into the plant, which I thought was really interesting. So how do you get it? Lots of different ways. And it's a really easy plant to take cuttings from. It's a really easy plant, as I've said, to layer or even just yeah, when it touches the ground, it just roots. So you can always dig up one of those bits and you've got a new plant in its own right, which will be a clone of the parent plant. You can grow it from seed. However, I would say, A, it takes quite a long time. It, need, it exhibits double dormancy and it won't germinate if you sow it in the autumn until the following March or even June. But also you don't know what plant you're going to get and you might end up with a variety that doesn't have good fruit, which I think would be quite sad after waiting for so long. But if you've got time on your hands and you want an experiment, then by all means, go ahead. I would definitely say for wildlife, if you've got room for some scrub, try from seed, no problem. But if you want it for the fruit, just buy a cultivated variety. Or a friend, take cuttings. And we'll put links to the RHS uh, technical pages of how to actually do that. So yeah, or obviously go ahead and buy a plant because these are grown as fruit shrubs you can actually go out and buy them which is really good and we've put them in various places because they will grow anywhere and when you are looking for various cultivars of blackberry if you're looking for for it for the fruit you need to look out for a few certain things now now the first thing to look out for is whether or not the plant you're buying is floricane or primacane so just going back to recap a floricane plant will only fruit on two-year-old growth, as I said, the ones in the wild do. But also you can now get primacane varieties, which will fruit on that first shoot that comes up in that spring later in the year. But then it will also grow fruit in the following spring on floricanes that come from that primacane. Oh, so when it... So it's the same shoot, but it just flowers the first year and exactly, the second. Exactly, exactly. I think most of them are actually floricane. You tend to get ones yeah, that yeah, send definitely. up the long shoots in year one, which you need to keep for the following year for the fruit. You also need to look out for when they crop, whether you've got an early, a mid or a late season plant. And if you've got a long fence, why not have one of each? Also, it's suitability for cooking because some of them are only good really for cooking and putting in your crumbles um, or if it's good for just picking straight off the bush. And also, this is really important, the vigour of the plant because the cultivars actually, what's really good is that they've, they've sort of made them, some of them smaller, so they're suitable for smaller fences and smaller gardens, which is what I definitely recommend because some of them can be quite vigorous. And importantly, for your crumbles, the size of the fruit, because most people do want something that's a bit bigger and juicier and nice to eat. And one final thing, actually, that is really important to look for is thorniness. And I don't know if you know this, but you can actually get thornless varieties of blackberries, which are really good, particularly if you've got kids and you just want them to be able to go out and pick the blackberries uh, fresh from your garden, but also just for general enjoyment. And I would just give two cultivars, there are lots of cultivars, but I'll give two which have, I think they've both got awards of garden merit from the RHS, and that is Loch Ness and also Loch Tay. So they're quite easy to remember because they've got a Scottish theme. And they're not thornless, but they are certainly very unthorny, if that's a, yeah. if that's a term. They're both floricane varieties, so they will shoot up one year and then fruit the following. But when you've got them in rotation, then obviously you've got fruit every year. And they're also both ideal for smaller gardens. I will just say Loch Tay is good for eating straight from the bush, whereas the Loch Ness is better for cooking. So yeah, 
go ahead and do some shopping. There's loads. Couldn't list them all. Yeah, I'm just going to give you one top tip for brambles, which is something that we've done in a lot of gardens. If you've only got one, say, fence panel to grow it on, then here's what we do. We put wires up on the fence going across. When new growth comes up in one growing year, we just tie it to the middle right we just send it straight upwards and we we bunch all those that new growth together just which just keep keeps them. it out of the way yeah. basically but the two-year-old growth we make into a wave shape so it goes up and curves down and then curves back up again sinusoidal and, wave if you yes. want to get technical very nice i was and, an engineer what can i say yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what that means is if it went straight one of these canes, if they went straight sideways, they might be, say, nine feet long, which yeah. will be more than one fence panels. But instead, if you've got one layer of wires low down and another higher up, then you can make, you can pin it so it goes up and then back down to the bottom wire and then back up to the top wire. Concertina. And by, yeah, that's really good. Yeah, so you concertina it, basically, and it means it fits onto one, one panel. As soon as the second year growth the stuff that has the flowers on it has flowered and fruited and you've picked all the berries, cut all of that off, untie the first year growth. And then while it's still soft, because it's still, you know, in that first year, you can shape it into this wave shape and tie it back against the fence. And then, the set, you know, the following year, you just do the same again. When the new growth comes up, you tie it back straight upwards. Perfect. Happy brambling, guys. Right, so that wraps up today. Hope you've all enjoyed it and learned some things. Actually, on that topic, we got uh, someone to get in touch to say that they've been taking notes from us, which was really lovely to hear, but also quite scary. <laughs> <laughs> I hope we're getting things right. <laughs> yes, no, top top student. I actually said that to her as well. Yeah, Thank we're you. happy to be corrected, by the way. If you think we've got something wrong, then yeah, do tell us. Uh, yeah, and oh, yeah, how, how do people tell us? That's important. Well, you can go on to Facebook or Twitter. So on Facebook, we are facebook.com forward slash the wildlife garden podcast. And on Twitter, we are twitter forward slash the wild GDN. On both of those, we will be putting the link to our live Q&A, which is on Thursday, the 12th of August. That's next week. And that will be at 7.30 p.m. So an hour before that, we will put the link up on Facebook and on Twitter. You can just log on to YouTube if you want to ask questions. But if you don't want to ask questions, you don't need to log on. You can just watch it live straight from the link. You don't need to log in at all. In the next episode, we're talking about moths, aren't we? I cannot wait for that. Yes. And if you wanted to give us a donation in the meantime to help us fund the gear that's allowing us to get out to record some interviews with people over the next couple of weeks, then follow the links in the show notes to our GoFundMe page Get the Wildlife Podcast some gear. Great. We look forward to hearing from you. And in the meantime, keep exploring your gardens. Bye. Bye. Bye.